Uh-oh. Oh, there we are. Hey! Anyway, what, what I was saying was, um, wow, I love coming into a sermon and coming into preaching the word, being refreshed and with the vision of Jesus before us. Um, man, that is a great way to start off delving into God's word. So, uh, I bet, I wonder if you have ever experienced this, walking into a thrift store or, or digging around in a pile of old books and you're looking at some of these old books and you just find a gem, some some really unique, rare book that you're like, wow, this is really cool. Well, I did that once. I was looking around in some books that my stepdad had, and I came across a book, and the title of this book was Gorbachev, exclamation mark, Has the Antichrist Come? And I said, huh, has the real Antichrist come? Huh, that's really interesting, I wonder. And this was late 90s, so Gorbachev was long off out of the scene of, of global politics, and I said, huh, I wonder what this guy has to say. And as I was reading it, uh, he, he spent a long time in this book talking about the, the birthmark on Gorbachev's forehead and how that decisively proved he was the Antichrist based on its shape. And I, I couldn't remember exactly how it goes. Uh, he, he transliterated Gorbachev's name, Gorbachev, into Greek and then some, did some numerology studies on it to find out that it equals the number 888. But first he had to... Uh, change his name to Gorbachev in order for that to, to add up. So go figure that out. I don't know how that works. The 888. Um, anyway, at the end of the book, he, t- he actually totals up all the odds in his favor that Gorbachev is the real Antichrist. And this is the number that he comes up with. He says, the chances that Gorbachev is Antichrist is 710 quadrillion, 609 trillion, 175 billion, 188 million, 282 thousand and a hundred to one that Gorbachev is the Antichrist. Those are some pretty good odds. And this this guy, he was so certain that Gorbachev was the Antichrist. And what's fascinating about the book, even as a teenager in 1990-something, was he was so wrong. He was so wrong. No one thinks that anymore. No one considers the possibility that Gorbachev would be the Antichrist. That was the, the kind of environment that I grew up in. I was surrounded by speculation about what the end times would be. Or is this person the Antichrist? Or is this a sign of the end times, this event or that event? And as part of my own journey is wrestling with those kinds of questions. And uh, despite all the, the stuff that was around me, the, the radio broadcasts or the, the books that I could read, it still ended up feeling very confusing the answer about what the end times were like and about what the scriptures said about the end times still felt very confusing to me. And so as, as a young man, as, as a young adult, I, I decided even before seminary that I wanted to dig into scripture and find out what it said because it didn't feel good to me that scripture could be so confusing on this matter. So I began to study the book of Revelation more in depth. And I was so edified by my study. I was very surprised by it. And as it turns out, I discovered there's an open secret about what the scriptures say about the end times. And I want to share that open secret with you this morning, later, to leave you in tension. So, the question about what the end times will be like. A lot of you guys ask some of these questions. I'll share some of the, the questions that you asked. Uh, somebody asked, what would the end be like? That's a sermon of our title. What is the rapture? And do you believe in pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture? Um, Someone's asked, can we address prophecy as it is happening all around us? Why don't we hear more about the end times from the pulpit? 
That's a great question, and, and uh, as, as we've already hinted, it's a tough subject. I struggled with, with uh, thinking about how to present this sermon, how to talk about this, for a couple different reasons. One of them is that, as I said, I love this topic. I love the scriptures that talk about the end times, and I find them greatly encouraging to me personally. Um, but I only have 25 minutes or less to talk about the, the great breadth of what is available in scripture to us. That's a, that's a big pressure to have to, to succinctly do all that. Another, another thing that was, was a struggle for me is I recognize that this is also a contentious part of Scripture. You can't go into a room and talk to fellow believers about this without getting 50 different opinions about it. And so often this is something that people fight about. And so I have to present an opinion that more than likely a good deal of you are probably going to disagree with. And that's just the fact about this subject. And then finally, I realize that as, as, I'm, as I'm preparing this and as I'm speaking to you guys, there's going to be a variety of experiences out there, perspectives on this. Uh, some of you will have studied greatly in, in this area, and you'll have formed uh, deep convictions and opinions about what Scripture says about this. And some of you may, may either care less about it, or you read Scriptures and it's just really confusing for you. And you feel perhaps a little intimidated by the subject. Maybe because of your lack of knowledge or because, frankly, it's frightening. So those are the challenges that lie before me. I have to create a sermon that's succinct, that doesn't offend anybody, and that is accessible to everyone. Woo! Here we go. So uh, with, any time that you feel unease, what's the best thing to do? Pray. So let's pray. Join me in prayer. Father God, I am so grateful for all the prayer that has already been lifted to you this morning. But Lord, it is no harm to continue to be on our knees before you and ask you to be present to us. And so in my words, Lord, may we understand together what you have for us regarding your scriptures as, as it covers the end times, Lord. So be with us. Illuminate for us these scriptures. And may your spirit be present in and working through us all. We ask in your name. Amen. So the scripture that I chose to, to kind of um, delve into this topic is First Thessalonians 4. And uh, actually, as, as, as Pastor Mark would say, buckle your pew belts, because we're going to be going through a whole bunch of different scriptures. But I think for the most part, we'll live here in this passage in First Thessalonians 4. The Thessalonian church was concerned about matters at the end times as the questions that we are asking now and they had written something to Paul, and Paul was responding back to him, saying, hey, here's the deal. Here's how we can understand our future. And so here's what he says, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. He says to them, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
So dealing with the question of what is the rapture and, and how, how do we understand the rapture, to be frank, that question isn't as, as important to me as uh, the question of what is the day of the Lord. The word rapture is nowhere in Scripture, actually, but I understand where it comes from. It comes from that phrase in this passage where it says caught up. Um, but that word isn't in there. However, the phrase day of the Lord or day of Christ or simply day is all over Scripture. And when we talk about the appearance of Jesus again, his second coming, that's the important phrase that we can study and hang on to and understand what that means. So in this passage, what does that mean? When we, when we understand the day of the Lord, what does this passage tell us? Well, one of the things it says is that when Christ comes, when he appears, first of all, there's going to be a resurrection, that the dead in Christ will rise and meet him in the air. And then those who are alive, we who are alive, it says, will meet them in the air. So there will be a resurrection and a, and a, a translation, so to speak, of, of believers to meet Christ in the air. Something else that in other parts of Scripture that talk about the day of the Lord in Second Peter 3, it says that on that day, um, the, what we understand is our world, the old earth and old heavens will be dissolved, as Peter puts it. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth created. So on the day of the Lord, uh, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Also, in, in lots of other scriptures all over uh, the Bible, there are references to the day of the Lord as a day of judgment. As a day when all that is wrong with the world, ISIS, racism, all the things that we see in the news, all those things will be made right. That's what judgment means. That what is wrong will be made right. Our hearts cry out for that. So on the day of the Lord, I see, as, as my understanding, as I read scripture and, and explore what the day of the Lord means, Jesus will come. And in his coming, all those things, I believe, will happen at once. We will be caught up with him. Resurrection will happen. Judgment will happen. All that is wrong will be made right. And the new earth and the new heavens will come. So I don't need a a timeline or a chart to explain it to you. That's simply, in a nutshell, what I think happens on the day of the Lord. All right. We're done. Good. Everybody's okay? Thumbs up? Yeah. No, obviously not, because as we explore this subject, we know that there are a variety, wide range of beliefs about this, right? There are so many positions that you can take, and, and rightfully so. The scriptures that we are studying are some of the most difficult in the Bible. So it's no surprise that there are, are a, a, a viable number of opinions about how we can understand the scriptures and the timing of of where that comes out. So I have a chart here to show you that kind of explores these three different views. Yeah. It's a little squashed out. Um, and, and, uh, but you know what? This is the, one of the most easiest to understand charts that I've found. Um, but there are, are, generally speaking, three main views regarding the end times. With lots of syllables in each of them. Um, my, the, what I just described uh, to you, my personal perspective and understanding of scripture is probably more closely aligned with what we would call amillennialism. Amillennialism would say that we are currently in the millennium, a spiritual millennium of reign of Christ now, but that our world will progressively get worse until Jesus comes again. Now, post-millennialism, all those syllables, will say that uh, we are also currently in the millennium, but things will progressively get better Postmillennialists have an optimistic view on the future. There's not a whole lot of postmillennialists around now. Um, granted, that what, what we are seeing in the world today, and there actually were in, in the uh, 19th century, there are, that was a dominant view of eschatology. 
And then finally, premillennialism. Uh, my, my wager is that if you're sitting here and you've learned something about the end times, you've probably learned it through that lens, the lens of premillennialism. Premillennialism will say that, um, that before Jesus comes, there will be a, a seven-year period of tribulation. There's some differing on that. Um, and then Jesus will come, and then there will be a thousand-year literal rule and reign of Jesus. So those are uh, a, 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 a kind of overview, broad overview of the three different positions that you can take regarding Jesus' return. Uh, not present on this chart is a fourth view called panmillennialism, which understands that everything will pan out in the end. So some of you might be panmillennialist. Um, granted, all these different kind of views are available to us. Um, we all probably fall somewhere on this if you've ever explored this. Some of you are asked in your questions, where does Chapel Hill fall? What does Chapel Hill understand about the end times? Um, And to be honest, nowhere in particular, because we understand that there's so much freedom to disagree about these that we don't want to land anywhere in particular. We each, of course, as pastors, have our own views and understandings of this. But as a church, we say there's room to disagree. But there's also essentials about what we believe about Jesus is coming again. So those essentials actually are in your pews. If you look in front of you, behind the blue cards in front of you, there's a little uh, pamphlet here that says, The Essentials of Our Faith. And this is a document that our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, has crafted that says, what are the most important things? These are the non-negotiables about what we believe as Christians. And and, uh, regardless of where you come from, your tradition, if you are from an evangelical tradition, you're probably going to agree with these essentials. And there's actually one of these essentials of these seven has to deal with the end times. So if you look at number six, read this with me on these, on these cards. This is what it says as a non-negotiable. Jesus Christ will come again to the earth, personally, visibly, and bodily, to judge the living and the dead, and to consummate history in the eternal plan of God. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So you notice what's not on here. This doesn't say anything about amillennialism, panmillennialism, whatever. What it says, what's, non, what's non-negotiable, what's essential to our faith is to say, yes, indeed, Jesus will come again. He really will come again. And that when he comes, the judgment will happen, and that the end of our age will come. It basically is, as we would say, having studied the story, the end of the story. All the loose threads are wrapped up in Jesus' coming. No, no comments about timing or, or how that's going to happen, but that essentially is what will happen. So that is the non-negotiable. And I hope as, as a Christian, as a believer, part of the core of your faith is a belief that, yes, Jesus will come again. And that in his coming there is hope, there is a newness for our world, reconciliation. And yet, despite that, we could say that, we could say, yes, those are the non-negotiables, but... Still, as a people, as a culture, as Christians, we still are asking the question, well, are we in the end times? Are these the last days? When is Jesus coming? Those are still questions that can keep us fascinated, can keep our attention. So I do want to talk about that. I do want to talk about if we are in the last days. And uh, I think the best place to look at that, the best place to understand that is actually in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus gives a description to his disciples of what the end times will be. So if you turn with me to Matthew 24, 
Jesus has just told his disciples that, he, the, that the temple will be destroyed. And so his disciples come to him in verse 3, and they ask him, and they say, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So as we read this, I'm sure that you are thinking, huh, this sounds an awful lot familiar to me, doesn't it? Wars and rumors of wars. Um, Lawlessness increased. Persecution of Christians. Um... Hate for one another. These are, these are marks of our age. So I would have to say, based on what Jesus says, yeah, I think we are in the last days. But I say that with a caveat. Because Scripture, when it talks about the last days, one of the interesting things is about when the last days begin. So when we read about the last days in Scripture, we read passages like Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter is describing what's happening then, the sermon about Pentecost, the visitation of the Spirit. And he says about that very event, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So in the last days, he says there, in 1 Corinthians ten eleven, Paul making a teaching point, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So when did the last days begin? Well, immediately after Jesus left this earth. And the time between his leaving and his coming again is what the Bible would call the last days. And the character of these last days is, as Jesus has described, this turmoil, wars, rumors of wars, famines, persecution. These are the marks of our age before Jesus comes. And because it is the last days, what Scripture tells us to be is expectant. To wait for Jesus to come. That even for 2,000 years, that is not too long for us to wait. Even if it were 2,000 more for Jesus to come again. Because these are the last days. So granted, these are the last days. We could agree on that maybe and, and, uh, and say that yes, that's what Scripture says. But we're still left with that question when is Jesus coming again? And I think Scripture has something to say about this for sure. First Thessalonians chapter 5 again, as we revisit that passage. The church of Thessalonians had this question too. They were asking, all right, so when is Jesus coming again? Tell us when that, that moment is, that time is. And so Paul addresses that question in chapter 5. Listen in on what he has to say. It says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains have come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So the metaphor that Paul uses here to describe the coming of the Lord is like a thief in the night. And obviously in that metaphor um, is surprise, is shock. If you've ever had anything stolen from you, generally speaking, you didn't expect it. And it was a surprise to you. Being visited by a thief in the night uh, is not something you plan for. And Paul here is actually echoing the words of Christ in, in Matthew 24 again. That phrase, thief in the night, is not original to Paul. It comes from Jesus. He says in Matthew 24 and verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be... The coming of the Son of Man. So in Paul and in Jesus, uh, they both share this metaphor of a thief, a thief in the night. And not only that, but they seem to describe the days before Jesus comes again as being like any other day. Giving in marriage and being married, buying and selling. The catchphrase for the time before Jesus comes will be peace and security. So it seems to take what Jesus and, and Paul are saying at face value, it seems to say... First of all, that no one's going to know when Jesus comes again. And second of all, the most likely time, it seems, when Jesus is going to come again is when people least expect it. That seems to be the plain reading of these scriptures, that we simply won't know, and it will come when we least expect it. And yet, for all that, for, for what the scriptures say, we can't help but try again and again to guess as to when Jesus is coming. Ever since he left, Christians and non-Christians alike. In 156 AD, the first probably bona fide Christian doomsday cult was the Montanist. And they hold up. In 156 AD, less than a generation after Jesus had left. And they said, oh, Jesus is coming again. Let's get ready. In 500 AD, some Christians believed that Jesus would come again 6,000 years after creation. So they figured out that that was the date, 6,000 years after creation, 500 AD. So they were ready. But then, he didn't come. Y2K wasn't original to us because there was first Y1K. And Y1K had its own set of panic. In 999 AD, Europe was in a panic about Jesus' coming again. And then 1000 AD passed, and they said, oh, we got the date wrong. Maybe it was 1,000 years after his death. So they waited for 133 AD, 1033. And years passed, and more and more of these kind of predictions came. Guys like Martin Luther, he believed that the end of the the world would come no later than 1600. Martin Luther tried to put a date on it. John Wesley thought the millennium would begin in 1836. John John Wesley was a post-millennialist. Joseph Smith, he thought the second coming would come around 1891. Joseph Smith was a founder of Mormonism. He, He pegged a date. And on and on and on in our own time, Y2K... Um, Harold Camping in 2011 trying to, trying to get a date. Over and over again, I just cherry-picked some of the dates, but there are countless examples of Christians and non-Christians alike trying to nail down the dates. And every time anybody has tried to do that, they have been made a fool. Every time. 
And I wish, and my encouragement to us as believers is to take Jesus' words at face value and to simply say, we don't know when he is coming again. And yet, and yet, Scripture tells us to not be surprised. Scripture tells us to be watchful and vigilant and sober and waiting and expectant for Jesus to come at any time. Here in First Thessalonians 5 again, starting in verse 4, Paul says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. And we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Here's the kicker, right? So he's going to tell us, what does it mean to be sober? He's going to tell us exactly how to be watchful and ready for Jesus' coming again, right? So what does he say? But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having studied numerology and deciphered the book of Daniel and nailed down every... Oh, wait a second. That's not what it says, is it? Okay. All right, let's try that again. So... Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul's encouragement to the believers in Thessalonica and to us is not to be using Scripture as some sort of decoder ring to decipher current events. What Paul says, to be ready, to be sober, to be watchful, is a matter of how we carry our lives. It's a matter of how we carry our lives. So he says, protect your hearts with faith and love. Protect your mind with hope. Live lives with that kind of character. What's interesting is, as I studied the scriptures, my own personal journey, as I dove into the book of Revelation and other passages in scripture... I realized that this was the consistent mark of what scriptures say about the end times. That it wasn't so much about the future as about our present lives now in light of the future. Even the book of Revelation, the entire book, is actually about how we as a church and as a body live in our world now. And that's the open secret about end times scripture. That it is about now. What an encouragement to me as I began to understand it and to read it. That it wasn't some sort of puzzle to solve. That this wasn't some sort of decoder ring. But that it really was about my encouragement now. As Paul says, encourage one another with these words. That's the open secret of scripture. So, when we ask the question, when is Jesus coming today? When is Jesus coming? Jesus says in reply to us, wait, be patient. When we ask, when is Jesus coming? Jesus says to us, trim your lamps and be ready, be expectant, but be a light in this world. When we ask, when is Jesus coming again? Jesus says to us, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was in jail, did you visit me. So the end times is really about now. The end times in scripture is really about how am I living day in, day out, a life expecting Jesus to come back any time. 
Now, I recognize that for some of you, you might be disappointed with that kind of an answer. It may seem like I'm dodging the question. Because in truth, Scripture has a lot to say about the end times. I recognize that there are Scriptures about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness who will come at the end of the age. I recognize that there are Scriptures about an influx of believers from the Jews. But when we read even those Scriptures, it is really about our character now. It is really about how we live in light of those things coming. So don't lose perspective on what the scriptures have to say about the end times. Keep that in perspective and recognize that. What what is interesting to me personally is when I have talked to people or when I have overheard or been in circles where people talk about the end times, the flavor of the conversation is really anxiety. It's really fear. And the purpose of scripture, as I've said repeatedly, is encouragement. The purpose of Scripture is hope, to guide our heads with hope, to, to gird our hearts with faith and love. So in light of that, how do we live? When we are tempted to strike back out at someone, when we are tempted to take vengeance, in light of Jesus' coming again, we recognize that every wrong that will happen in this world and in our own lives will be righted. So we don't take vengeance because God is the righteous judge and he will judge. When we look at our lives and we see illness and brokenness in our world, we recognize that God is the ultimate healer. Yes, now, but also truly and finally forevermore. That there is no brokenness, no sickness that will not be made new, that will not be reconciled in Christ in the end of the age. When we are faced, as our brothers and sisters are, all around the world, with giving our lives up for the cause of the gospel, in sometimes small ways and sometimes in great and very poignant ways, we can recognize that there is nothing that we lose in this life that will not be repaid ten, a hundred, a thousand times more in the life to come. In every way, our life now is shaped and formed by the life to come. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of of Christ's second coming to us. And I pray that we live lives formed by that day in and day out, knowing that we have hope for this world. My prayers, I have watched the news and seen what is going on in our world, news about terror, terror, news about racial tension and whatever else happened this week, my prayer has been Revelation chapter twenty-two, twenty. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That is my hope. And I hope that that is also your hope, that you can watch the news, instead of in fear and anxiety, that you can watch through lenses of hope and be encouraged and say there is nothing that can happen in this world that will not be made new that will not find its reconciliation in Jesus someday. So let us be people who live that way. Let us be people who keep that in perspective. And let us be people who stand on the truth of Christ's coming again. Amen.